Welcome to our Elenovri podcast on what is driving the financing market in the alternative investment space. I'm Benedikt Kurt and I'm a counsel in our Luxembourg banking team. I'm specializing in financing matters and I'm regularly advising on fund financing matters. I have the pleasure and privilege today to welcome and, sh and share this podcast with three of our London and Luxembourg financing experts. First, we have Fiona Cumming, who is a partner in our London Leverage Finance team. She advises on a wide range of financing matters with a particular focus on fund financing matters, lender and borrower sponsor side. Hannah Gates, she's a senior associate in our London Leverage Finance team. She's one of our experts in leveraged finance and direct lending matters. And we also have uh, Andreas Hommel, who is a counsel in our Luxembourg banking team. Andreas regularly advises also on fund financing matters and is also having a focus on Luxembourg uh, real estate financings. So what is on our menu today? Just a quick overview. So we will first talk about fund level financing products. The second topic of our podcast today will be a slightly different setup where the fund is acting as guarantor or where the fund provides uh, equity commitment letters. And the third topic today will focus on hot topics in the space of direct lending and leveraged finance. So let's move to our first topic today, fund level financing, where the fund, the fund vehicle is at the heart of the recourse of the lender. I believe it's fair to say that despite the global pandemic, the fund finance market has continued to grow and market players have continued to acknowledge the benefits and flexibility of fund finance products. We have seen a steady increase in fund financing matters. So Fiona, what are you seeing as key trends in fund finance? Thanks, Benedict. And yeah, completely agree that the appetite for debt from our fund clients across all asset classes is very strong um, at the moment, due, I think, in part to the post-pandemic investment opportunities and steady fundraising also um, during the pandemic. Increasingly, funds are telling us that the sublines, so the fund-level subscription line facilities, are seen as necessary um, from their perspective to win deals and give them flexibility with their investment strategy. And this is in, you know, in addition to the usual sort of drivers for improving IRR um, and smoothing out capital calls that they typically funds would, would use a subscription line for. And so really what we're talking about here is a growth in the equity bridge facilities. And Hannah, I think in the downstream side, you've certainly seen that as a, a, a trend. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Fiona. I mean, downstream, we're seeing a huge increase in the amount of debt funds that have liquidity lines uh, to speed up the funding process. It, it's um, increasingly expected in parts of the market, even to the point where it factors in the decision-making process for some sponsors when they're working particularly on direct lending deals that are used to finance large international M&A transactions where short closing timetables are expected. And Andreas, what are you seeing in, in the Luxembourg market uh, when it comes to Luxembourg funds? What we see in the Luxembourg market is an impact on the structuring and on the fund documentation. That is because both the fund closing and the financing closing are being managed in parallel. 
fund closing and fund uh, financing closings need to be implemented jointly. And so there's a need for interaction between finance and fund teams on the lawyer side, but also on the client side where you see different players acting jointly when uh, closing a fund and its financing. Thank you, Andreas. And Fiona, maybe let's focus briefly on lender risk in the equity bridge market. Whilst default rates in the equity bridge market appear to be very low, I think there were mainly two cases, Abrage and JES, that grabbed the headlines in the past and which highlighted potential lender risks in this context. Can you tell us more about these cases and how lenders reacted to these cases from a risk mitigation perspective? Yeah, thanks, Benedict. So you're right. The subscription line market has, you know, for its 30 plus years that it's been around, been seen as a very low risk market. Default rates are incredibly low. And so the cases that you mentioned, Abrage in around 2019 and JES last year, certainly have caused some shockwaves and given lenders the opportunity to take a step back um, and test their own internal policies and the way that they interact with their borrowers with regard to um, a couple of key um, areas. So let's just touch on um, each of the cases um, in turn. So Abrage was um, a case of a large Middle Eastern fund, which had a subscription line from a large European bank and went into financial difficulty. And at the time when the bank went to enforce its rights under the security over the right to core capital from the LPs of the fund, they found out that the commitments of the investors had indeed been cancelled. And so there was no capital commitments left to call uh, to be used to, to repay the debt. And obviously in a limited recourse transaction, as all subscription lines are, that was a, a major issue for the lenders. The issue that really came up was around um, the notification that the investors had as to the existence of the subscription line and the security that had been granted over the right to call capital from the investors themselves. In many jurisdictions, and Andreas will, will talk a little bit about Luxembourg specifically, but in many of the jurisdictions that, that we come across in the subscription line space, the security is perfected both from the governing law of the security document and also from the jurisdiction of incorporation of the relevant investors by way of delivery of notice to the investors. What happened in the markets prior to, to 2019, and indeed um, in some markets has continued, is that the funds that were very reticent um, to have too much communication uh, with investors. They didn't want their investors to be bothered by lots of ad hoc communication. And in this case, the ad hoc communication being the notices being delivered by lenders to the investors, notifying them that the security um, had been created over their capital commitments. And so their practice had grown up that actually the delivery of notice to investors was being delayed, sometimes for up to three months or longer, um, until, for example, the quarterly report that the investment manager would typically give to the investors was being sent. And then the notice would be slipped into the back of the quarterly report. Now, in the context of Abrage, um, that was indeed what had happened. So the investors did not have um, notice um, that this, the security had been granted. And so the lenders had very little recourse vis-a-vis -vis the investors in terms of um, being able to, to call on them because the capital commitments had been cancelled and the, there was no real recourse to the investors because they had no knowledge that there was another interest in those capital commitments, which would 
typically have put them on notice that if there was going to be a cancellation of commitments, that that was something that shouldn't be done without the lender consent. So we have seen um, a pushback from lenders um, since the Abraj case around the timing um, of delivery of notices. And I think it's fair to say that in most cases, certainly the lender starting position will be that the notice of assignment is required to be given um, prior to, to first utilization. In the case of JES, that one is more unusual in terms of the issue there was that the asset manager had actually falsified the subscription documentation that it said had been entered into with certain limited partners. And on the back of the false evidence um, that had been provided of capital commitments, a US bank actually uh, advanced a subscription line. And it was subsequently found out that the commitments weren't there. So the line had been lent on the basis of a certain understanding as that, that there had been subscribed capital in the fund. And that you know, it turned out that there, what, that capital wasn't there. Um, and as mentioned previously, in a limited recourse transaction, the lenders are looking to access that capital in order to have their facility repaid in the downside scenario. So when the investors come to enforce, they actually found out there was nothing to enforce against because the, the capital had not been there. Now, obviously, a relatively unusual situation in terms of a pure fraud situation uh, whereby there had been uh, falsified documentation. But what it did sort of highlight from a lender's perspective is the risk um, that when we're doing due diligence on the um, investor commitments, we are not speaking to the investors themselves. So there's a real reliance on the asset manager, the general partner. They are the ones who are providing us with the, the documentation that we are uh, due diligencing for the purposes of then sizing the facility and quantifying the risk that the lenders are taking. And so the, uh, a lot of the banks have, have re-looked at their due diligence and their um, practices and whether they need to, there, there is anything that needs to be done internally to enhance those. And I think really where the lenders came out was that, that this was an unprecedented situation. It was unusual. And so their policies internally are generally pretty robust. But it did highlight, as we have seen pushback from lenders um, on certain of the more borrower-friendly practices that had been starting to creep into the market. For example, borrowers insisting that rather than lender counsel reviewing side letters, that the lenders had to rely on a summary of side letters produced by the borrower's counsel. And there has been some pushback on that sort of even one more step removed sort of type of due diligence whereby not even primary source material was being provided to lenders. So there has been some movement, but only in the circumstances, I would say, where there has been sort of a very strong borrower position taken with regards to due diligence. Just a, a couple of points to note um, that have also come in after both of these situations is that lenders with concerns about having this very limited recourse and taking full risk on investors' capital commitments being available, we have seen in a few deals downstream covenants being put in place. So, for example, there being um, a NAV covenant or an FMV, fair market value covenant coming in, which actually looks down into the portfolio of the fund as additional comfort that there is going to be asset available to support um, the subscription line. And in some cases, we have also seen lenders insisting on a minimum amount of capital being called in the first year, say 5 to 10% of the total capital commitments, in order to ensure that the limited partners have skin in the game 
And therefore, from the limited partners perspective, the risk that they will walk away from a capital call that is made by a lender in a default situation is seen as being reduced because the investors are then walking away from the benefit, the upside of investing in a fund by way of returns given draconian defaulting lender provisions that we typically see in LPAs. So a couple of other things that we have seen, but I would definitely wouldn't say that those are our market standard. Thank you very much, Fiona. And from a Luxembourg perspective, Andreas, what do we have to add in terms of investor notification and processes? Yes, on the, the investor notifications process, there have been uh, massive discussions on the topic uh, in light of uh, the uh, scandals that Fiona just mentioned and uh, where we ended up uh, in the Luxembourg market and in the absence of any technical particularity to Luxembourg and its uh, conflicts of law rules is that investor notification is uh, very much uh, the standard, as is the standard in the international market that leads that an analysis on a case-by-case -case basis as to how you will reach the investors. Will it be through quarterly reports with the concern that uh, Fiona just mentioned earlier? Will it be by way of a mailing, by email or an actual postal mailing? It really depends on the scenarios and what we try to facilitate is to find parties to find an arrangement between parties which is convenient and workable uh, for everyone. All other topics uh, are typically then being addressed in the fund documentation, which will contain already various waivers in respect of the rights that the lender can have in respect of reaching out to investors. And so it comes out to an interaction between that fund documentation and rather short form uh, notification to the investors. Thank you, Andreas. And beyond lender risk, I think another hot topic in the fund finance uh, space and the fund financing market in the alternative investment space more generally is ESG. So one question for Fiona, maybe for the fund finance aspects and Hannah for the direct lending and leverage finance aspect. Is it fair to say that ESG is all over the place also when it comes to fund financing and leveraged financing and direct lending matters? Um, certainly from the, the fund financing space, I would definitely say yes. There's increasing pressure from the, the public and, and the market more generally on um, the financial market participants um, to have a positive impact um, on uh, ESG matters and, and post-COP26. That's obviously something that is in, increasing. There is also additional EU regulation, um, which sets out you know, ambitious objectives as regard to you know, reorientation of capital towards sustainable investments. And that's having um, an, obviously a direct impact on our, on our fund clients, especially those established in Europe. So for sure, this comes in into the, uh, the fund finance space. I think, Hannah, you've, you've also seen this play out in the downstream market as well. Yeah, that's right, Fiona. Um, I, I think, you know, the regulatory and investor preference trends that you, you mentioned from a fund finance perspective apply equally downstream. Um, as a sort of very rough indicator, I, I would estimate that maybe 15 to 20 percent of senior unitrash deals that come across our desks have some form of ESG-based KPIs, um, usually still just linked to the margin ratchet in most sort of mainstream financing, not the sort of uh, more fulsome ESG package, you know, with a sustainability coordinator, etc. But yeah, so certainly KPIs on the margin ratchet are becoming more and more common. 
Thank you both. And to wrap up our discussion on fund financing products, um, can I ask you, maybe Fiona, what have you seen in terms of latest trends with respect to NAV facilities, so net asset value facilities, where, let's say, the lender focuses more on the underlying assets, and also hybrid facilities, where there is an equity bridge element and also a NAV element? Yeah, I think well, we've we've mentioned the rise of the equity bridge, and certainly that is something that um, that we are seeing more and more short term, looking you know both to some kind of equity support, be it in terms of capital commitments, or I think as Andreas will talk about um, shortly, in terms of some sort of ECL or guarantee from the fund as well, whilst also then looking downstream to the assets that are acquired or to be acquired using the um, particular facility. I mean. In terms of NAV facilities, that that is something that we have seen really explode over the last sort of 12 months or so, I think, across all of the markets in, in which we operate in and um, across a number of different asset classes as well. So private equity, private debt and secondaries in particular, I think we've seen a real rise in, in NAV facilities. Obviously, the rationale for that is different depending on the asset class. But say, you know, in the private equity space, the NAV facilities are providing you know, additional investment capacity, which is allowed um, the the funds take advantage of these sort of post-pandemic opportunities that come up and do and do more follow-on investment, and so sort of comes back to the, the points we were talking about before in the private debt space. I think we see more NAV facilities coming in earlier on in fund life, allowing for you know in, increased returns for the fund as well, and general sort of acceleration of liquidity for portfolio companies as well. Again, triggered by you know, some of the the post-pandemic kind of considerations as support is being turned off by government. There is a need for additional liquidity um, at portfolio company level and NAV facilities are a way in, in which the funds can raise additional support for portfolio companies. So a variety of different reasons, I think, but certainly in terms of a trend, absolutely, you, you, you've hit the nail on the head with that. Great. Thank you very much, Fiona. Let's now move to our second topic, which is uh, guarantees and equity commitment letters provided by the fund, the fund vehicle. Andreas, in the Luxembourg market, are you seeing these fund guarantees and equity commitment letters? And, and what is the, the reason for using these instruments when dealing with a fund and in particular also with a Luxembourg fund? And what are the challenges? So three questions in one for you. <laughs> Moving on then from uh, fund finance at the fund uh, vehicle level directly to um, the credit support granted by the fund vehicle in respect of transactions run underneath the fund vehicle very commonly downstream. The two topics that we see are fund guarantees, in essence, where the fund himself uh, guarantees directly the obligations of a third party in the transaction. It can be a transactional counterparty, a seller for an acquisition deal, or it can be a third party bank financing a deal or a downstream vehicle. And on the other side, equity commitment letters. So equity commitment letters where the fund itself takes an undertaking vis-a-vis -vis fund entities to bring in additional equity with then a third-party regime for the benefit of a third party gets the benefit of the undertaking that equity will be brought down into the fund structure. What are the challenges to sponsor guarantees and equity commitment letters? Well, they can take different forms very much depending on the product that you are looking at, at the type of fund that you are looking at, whether you are in the private equity direction 
direct lending or in the real estate uh, finance uh, space. For example, in real estate uh, finance, these you very commonly see equity commitment letters whenever um, over the ongoing duration of a deal, uh, development costs or milestone payments need to be financed out of the equity. How do you structure an equity commitment letter? Well, it's an undertaking between the fund and the fund entities for the benefit of a third party who may have security over the rights under the equity commitment letter and can call directly against the fund. That's also why these letters and guarantees are highly negotiated and commercially sensitive because it's a means for third parties to get recourse against the fund. What are the challenges then from a legal perspective? Well, it goes very much to fund governance topics, to more complex fund documentation that needs to be reviewed, additional approvals, notably from the alternative investment fund managers that need uh, to be obtained. Thank you, Andreas. And uh, Fiona, on top of the points mentioned by Andreas, do you see any additional key trends in terms of guarantees or equity commitment letters on your side? Um, not much to add, really, from what Andreas has said. I think the uh, the only point I would note is that often we see the asset managers, the, the GPs, preferring the ECL route um, to the guarantee route. And that is primarily because in most LPAs, guarantee will be taken into account for the purposes of the borrowing limit for the particular fund. But an ECL typically would not. And therefore, they can preserve you know debt incurrence headroom by using an ECL as opposed to a guarantee. Thank you. So let's now move to the third topic, which is the latest trends and hot topics in the leveraged finance and direct lending space. Hannah, how often do you see Luxembourg elements in your leveraged finance or direct lending deals structured out of London? And what are these Luxembourg elements on your deals? Yeah, we, we see Luxembourg used a, a huge amount on our deals, both on the borrower side, where the double Lux Co structure is is very popular, and also on the lender side, where Lux funds are, are used often for financings across Europe and often where there's otherwise no Lux element uh, in the underlying group. Interesting. Thank you. And Andreas, from Lux perspective? Have you anything to add to that? Yes, equally, Luxembourg uh, remains one of the key jurisdictions in terms of uh, direct uh, lending uh, funds in that uh, the regulatory framework is quite uh, favorable to doing lending into other jurisdictions. Funds are typically structured from the outset to permit uh, lending into the key jurisdictions that they are commercially focusing. Uh, the double Luxco structure that Hannah just mentioned is proven and tested in terms terms of security setup. So it is a key driver to lenders, both lenders and borrowers, to having a um, double Luxco structure sitting in an underlying deal. Thank you, Andreas. And Hannah, what are you seeing as higher level trends in the direct lending markets on top of ESG, obviously? Yeah, yeah definitely on, on top of ESG um, and, and sort of decarbonization and, and, and all social impact investing and all that sort of ESG entails. On top of that, we're seeing a huge increase in multi-strat funds, increased crossover between downstream products. So an increased amount of sort of debt equity hybrid products, in for crossovers, etc., and also an increase in, in opportunistic funds and special situations. I, I think, you know, largely reflective of the economic drivers that have existed over the last couple of years. In terms of document terms themselves, at the top end of the senior Unitrash market, we're seeing increased commoditization and borrowing of certain terms from syndicated products. So I think those are the largest trends we're seeing. 
that's quite interesting, actually, because I think we also see a bit of that in the nav space as well. Hannah, and even in the subscription line space, the sort of the, the borrowing of terms from the traditional senior leverage finance market, though where I think fund finance had always been sort of you know standalone in terms of um, it uh, of the market terms, given the players in this space are obviously the same as the ones who are undertaking the leverage finance transactions. We're seeing capital markets teams at the, especially sort of the large cap sponsors, also you know looking to have oversight over the fund level financing, given the use of fund level financing to support downstream as well, particularly in the, in the NAV space. And so, yeah, convergence of, of terms, um, especially around things like, you know, syndication management, management uh, limitations on um, covenant packages, etc., are, are something that we are, we are seeing creeping into the, the fund finance space also. So, thank you. To wrap up our discussion, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot going on in the financing market in the alternative investment space. Thank you very much, Fiona, Hannah and Andreas, for this overview and interesting insights on the drivers in the financing market in the alternative investment space. Thank you for listening and have a great day.